This year, we're celebrating 20 years of Glass Tire. That's 20 years of dedicated coverage of Texas art spaces and artists, 20 years of hard work by our editors and writers, and 20 years of showing the world all our state has to offer. Since we're a nonprofit, all of our work is made possible thanks to readers and listeners like you. If you'd like to donate to Glass Tire to keep our work going, you can become a sustaining donor or make a one-time gift at glasstire.com forward slash donate. Also, if you like our podcast, please consider subscribing to us and leaving us a rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Art Dirt. This is a podcast where we at Glass Tire talk about topical art topics. My name is Brandon Zek. I'm William Sarada. And today we are talking about art memes. Uh, so this is, I feel like, William, this is kind of like a, a long time coming. Um you and I have both followed all of the various art meme accounts that have really come up in the last I feel like really over the last like two or three years has been the 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 apex of them. Yeah, they were taking root more before the pandemic, and now we've had a whole year of pandemic life, and they haven't slowed down. So, yeah, we've all just been on the internet and on social media for a solid year, and these have. And I mean, all of the things that have happened over the past year and nifties and, and the pandemic and how it's affected uh, artists and galleries and people who are working and a part of the art world, that's all been ripe for this kind of content. Um, the trend towards doing art-specific meme-related content, I mean, it, it does go back to like 2015. There are some accounts that are older that have stopped already at this point, but the kind of proto art meme account for me feels like um, classical art memes official. It's classical underscore art underscore memes underscore official. And, you know, I don't know if this is exactly where these type of memes started, but these aren't necessarily memes about the art world, but they're memes that use art of some kind. A lot of times it's ancient art that uh, kind of looks really bizarre now, or it's paintings that have kind of a surreal element or you know even cartoons sometimes and it's very general memes like the text of the meme isn't about the art world per se and i think for that reason these this account specifically and this type of meme has has a much broader approach than some of the accounts we're going to be talking a little more in depth about today or just in the genre of accounts we're talking more about today um this account on instagram has 891,000 followers and many of the accounts that we're going to be talking about have 10% of that. Yeah, you're right. The idea that you can use a universally recognized image and slap a punchline on top of it. Um, that's, that's how memes work. So it's a good point to make that the classical art memes Instagram page, I was interested, surprised even to find out as well. It, outstrips everyone else that we're going to talk about today. Um, and we may focus on some newer accounts because they speak a little bit more to what's relevant, what's trending. 
online and in the greater culture. Well, and these accounts in general kind of come through uh, the tradition of accounts that just make fun of a subculture. A lot of times, you know, to be in on the joke, you have to kind of be a little bit of an insider or have some inside knowledge about the topic. Um, or at least some know-how of what's going on. Like there's an account called Diet Prada that was kind of one of these uh, original accounts. And a lot of times accounts like this or meme accounts or accounts that have this text image focus, uh, I feel like we a lot of times see the fact that they start out as a joke or as someone's side project, They then they kind of grow into a brand, then they grow into a publication, and then they grow into some sort of media company. Of course, again, I'm speaking much more broadly, like Diet Prada has kind of become that. Um, another account is called Fuck Jerry, which you may be familiar with if you watched any of the Fire Festival documentaries. They're like a social media company that partners with influencers, and they're, they're like a PR company, basically. But on social media, and they built their brand by creating memes and or sourcing other people's memes and reposting them. Um, so just like any other any other topic or any other institution, these things start off small, they gain a following, they grow, and then they eventually have their own problematic associations around them. Um, because if you grow too big and you try to monetize, that's kind of just what happens sometimes. I have in my notes that memes are the cultural outlet of the people, which sounds a little silly to say, but the point being that anyone can make memes and they generally speak to sometimes a broad audience, sometimes a niche audience. But what I want to reflect here is that there's a lot of cultural workers that have more than a cursory knowledge of Photoshop. And they're spending their free time making images that try to resonate with a community or a subset of people, a culture. Uh, but as you mentioned, Brandon, the general trajectory of this line of image making often is aspirational on the part of the, the meme-er. They, they may want to build this into a larger brand, something that they can turn into a more traditional publication outfit. Um, and I think we might see that the more that we talk about some of these specific accounts, we'll, we'll see the strategy that's employed in um, some of these successful meme makers. To kind of ground this conversation a bit, we're not just going to be naming meme accounts and then describing them. That would be boring. And better yet, you can just go look at them on Instagram. So we're going to give you a little bit of the who, what, when, where, how, why of what these accounts are, why it seems like they're around, what it seems like they're trying to do, and a little bit of the background. If classical art memes is kind of the proto of art meme accounts, I would say Brad Trammell is really the origins. Uh, he's an artist. He was based in New York for uh, a while. He has had various art projects kind of go viral to an extent, but the real proto-art meme origins of Brad seem to be a, a Tumblr that he ran or co-ran called Jogging. And it was this image-based Tumblr that it was basically like an online publication that was a collection of artist-made images. And they went, some of them went viral, and they were, it was a weird internet art project. William, did you follow jogging at all, or did you find out about it later? 
So I'm probably the same age as Brad Trammell. So I remember the jogging coming up in art class, in my studio art courses. We were aware of it as students um, in North Texas. I kind of, and I was even working in some similar modes of digital images, net art style, uh, flyer production, graphics, experimentation with graphic graphic imaging technology. Um, but I didn't follow it religiously. Uh, I was just aware of it. He's popped up here and there um, in the past 10 years. He's remained quite active. He keeps shifting his practice to meet the moment. Um, as per why he's on our list today, he has a Patreon that sort of manifests as an Instagram account where he publishes boutique memes that are pretty absurd most of the time, and they critique the art world in a roundabout way or directly. And he's usually publishing images by artists now. They can be really hard to follow. Some of them are laid out like comics. Uh, a lot of them are very busy or the text, it almost feels like it's written in like PR, like philosophical speak, which is part of the critique, right? It's like, even though you're an insider person who knows about art and you're following this account, like you still kind of don't know what's going on or you have to really spend time and parse this thing that should just be an easy to consume meme on the internet. Um, he was also, I think, one of the early people who kind of embraced the content generating for money side of this, uh, at least in terms of art people doing it. So he, uh, after he ran jogging for a while, he had a, uh, like a conceptual Etsy store called Ultraviolet Production House. And then he moved on to Patreon, um, where he became a creator. And, you know, for five bucks a month, you'd be able to subscribe to his Instagram and watch his other content. He's almost kind of like a YouTuber in a way. Like he has started to do these videos where he sits behind the camera and he's, I mean, he comes off as like a full-time quote-unquote content creator worker now. I'm sure he is. I'm sure that he's working akin to the way that YouTubers work, which is all day, every day <laughs> for the entire year. Um, they have to be their own publishing house. That's what happens when they get their wish. And power to them if they're able to turn their image-making production strategy, or even just some kind of cultural commentary, online curatorial project into a cash flow machine. It's, um, we're still operating on the back of these either startup companies or giant uh, social media platforms. So Brad Trammell relies on Patreon to publish his content to his audience of, of subscribers. He relies on Instagram's preeminence to make sure that thousands of people are going to see his images that he publishes. Brad Trammell is a great example because he rolls with the punches of whatever is on the horizon of how we're all going to consume culture for free or for a subscription. So Hilda Lynn Helfenstein, the author behind Jerry Gagosian, another very popular art meme page, said in one of her interviews, um, Instagram, she doesn't suspect Instagram to be around even in five years. And 
I think that's a little aggressive of a projection, but I think she has a point. It's probably going to morph into something we don't recognize today. It's already different from what it was a few years ago with their push into e-commerce. And I think artists and cultural ideators have been comfortable using social media under the freemium mode where you don't, all you have to do is click a button and you can get the content you're looking for and you can go down a rabbit hole. But these platforms will probably shift into e-commerce more and more. Um, and that may pose a threat to the way some of these image producers are working. Well, and the the kind of whole heart of these meme accounts, and which is also the most uh, interesting thing about them to me, um, is that these meme accounts are trying to essentially, they're trying to make sense of the art world, but they're trying to make sense of an art world to a community that already has some knowledge of the art world. Like, like I said earlier, they're relating to a specialized community. So you kind of have to know, you know, what a blue chip gallery is in order to get the joke. You have to know that term, or you have to know um, who someone in a photo is like, Jeff Koontz is in one of Jerry Gagosian's posts. So you have to know that is Jeff Koontz to get the joke. So it's weirdly very, it, it's trying to make sense of it while being very insider. But the thing is, it's saying the quiet part of the conversation out loud, which people are starting to do more and more. And we've seen that over the past year, especially in as more people have a platform and as more people create accounts like this, but it's something that hasn't ever really been done or that everyone, you know, gossips about at openings or, I mean, I can't even imagine the gossip world of the New York art world, which is a lot of what Jerry is critiquing because it's the very East coast, West coast, elite art world where blue chip galleries are hiding prices and, galleries and dealers are not treating their staff well that's like that's the joke the joke's also the joke's a little cruel frankly the intersection of what is considered to be mainstream and what is considered to be the elitist underbelly of the art world comes to a very weird point in these accounts specifically stuff like brad trammell um jerry gagosian Art Handler Mag, even more local and kind of student-focused meme pages like UT Art Memes. I believe there's been a couple from North Texas universities as well that I've seen. There's a lot of people that circulate within the art world, and whatever art world is to you when I say those terms, it could be you as an art handler, it could be you as a dealer, it could be you as someone who just graduated college and isn't really sure what the art world is going to be for you. There's a lot of people that are looking for answers and um, people see Instagram either as a meme maker or as a meme consumer as a way to kind of trade inside jokes in public, kind of like you said, Brandon. And it's, it's an interesting development. I don't know what it signals exactly aside from that people are looking for opportunity in a high stakes, high barrier to entry industry. <laughs> yeah, that's it's important to note the accounts that we're talking about today. Um, and 
just for your reference, in the post uh, for this podcast, we'll have a like this kind of master list of these art meme accounts that we've been looking at, uh, not just for this podcast, but over the past you know couple years. So if you want to check out that list and actually see some of these memes, uh, hit the link in the description of this podcast, or you know visit Glass Tire and see the post. But the thing about these posts is that they're joking and their goal is to make you laugh because they're memes, but their goal is to make you laugh because what they're saying is true and you know it. So, you know, in a weird way, these meme accounts, although they seem cynical, I almost feel like they have a hopeful bit to them because whenever we laugh, there's an inherent hope that we recognize that we are laughing at something and we recognize the reason we're laughing is because of either the absurdity of it or because of the inherent problems that it has. So they're very cynical, but I feel like they also have a hope in these memes that if we start talking about these things, we can move forwards past them. I totally agree. There's got to be some element of power in an art handler that just finished a massive shift, moving hundreds of pounds of art all day on their feet at an art fair, and then posting a little ambiguous gossip about a dealer that we all know. And to your point, Brandon, I think it could be that we're all looking to get a little underhanded joke at the expense of someone that has more power in the art world than we do. But I think it's also just to recognize that we see each other as people lower on the totem pole, perhaps. Registrars, front of house people, they don't always get name recognition or acknowledgement, maybe in the community and maybe person to person, peer to peer. But in the broader sense, it doesn't always happen. So I think that these meme accounts allow people, even if they're doing it anonymously, to just kind of say, we see each other and we have to have a laugh about what happened when the shift is over. To be clear, also, the accounts that we're talking about today, there are a ton of other accounts that are that don't really use humor and that are places for people to air their very real grievances with galleries, museums, institutions, um, places that have inherent problems and racism and those kind of things uh, that are a part of the art world. These accounts aren't that. They're very humor and creative and like content creator driven. You know, for what I've seen, they're not really open sourced. Um, We know the person who runs Jerry Gagoshin, or by we know them, I mean that they are public with their identity. But many of these accounts, you either have to dig pretty deep or they are completely anonymous, especially the ones that only have, you know, three or 4,000 followers and haven't really blown up or tried to turn it into a larger endeavor. Um, they're just accounts that are making these critiques more more quietly. And I feel like, William, I'd love to know your thoughts about kind of what that, like, power dynamic is. Like, it's institutional critique, but it's also, it's a way to almost do it safely because, you know, it's declawing it a little bit through humor, but also it's a way that, you know, someone in a museum's very midst or in a gallery's very midst could be running this account from the gallery's front desk and no one would ever know. 
you know, Brandon, there's a pretty wide range of content creators and commentary happening on these accounts that we're going over today. They range from being purposefully humorous, funny, clever, um, to being a bit more didactic, really trying to air the real lived experiences of real people online. And as you mentioned, most of these accounts are anonymous. I don't know if that speaks to the the state of the labor market that people really, 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 really don't want to lose their jobs, or if it's inherent to social media as a system itself, that if you don't have to put your collateral on the line, why would you? Um, it's an interesting point because a lot of these accounts, funny or not, kind of reveal what you just wouldn't really be allowed to say at an opening or behind the desk of an art institution. And now people get to do it with more abandon than I'm used to seeing in person. I If it allows for more literacy of art as an institutional culture, then I guess I'm open to it. I am always skeptical of people who don't sign their name next to their work. It's just something to remember whenever you're evaluating any kind of messaging or statement or or artwork even. That's one of the things that really interests me about these accounts is it's so antithetical. By it, I mean the anonymity that's associated with many of them. It's so antithetical to the ideas that we have in the art world, like the idea that you should pay an artist for their work and you should credit them. You, you should credit the photographer that made a photograph. And like, there's ideas of ownership and especially digital ownership with nifties that's recently happened. How with, if you buy an NFT, you essentially are proclaiming your digital ownership. Um, and the accounts that do this anonymously, I mean, very obviously it's not about taking credit it's about their messaging or about the fun of making memes or you know whatever but it's just so antithetical to the entire system which again may be part of the point because these accounts are being critical of the entire system when jerry gagosian uh was doing some interviews before their identity became public um they were, of course, always asked about it just because we're people and we're curious and we want to know about identity and who someone is and we want to get into their story. And whenever they were asked, they were just like, my, my identity isn't really important. Like, I obviously have this, like, elite cultural knowledge and I, you know, have lived in places that prove that I have privilege and all of this. But it's like that kind of doesn't matter in the entire situation. And in a way, it's it's weirdly mirroring contemporary art, how so much of contemporary art is about identity, and knowing the identity of an artist really helps you with the work much of the time. It pushes and pulls against our ideas and expectations of the art world in a way that both does and doesn't make sense. I, I, I know I'm sitting on the fence a little bit with this, but it, it, it cuts both ways really deeply. I think I see what you mean. The impulse for these people to operate on Instagram specifically, anonymously, or not to assign their name to what they're doing, but rather a handle or a brand, um, I think it signals that people, there's a lot of people that have some kind of interest in seeing 
the greater art culture change and shift. Because otherwise, if there was something to gain by attaching your name to everything, which is usually the case when you're selling something, you need to let people know where to send the invoice, who's who's the proprietor, um, and that's not happening here. It may happen later, as it did with Jerry Gagosian, although Hilda Lynn Helfenstein was outed involuntarily. Um, she didn't do it in a PR scheme. She didn't strategize it, at least to my knowledge. And if she had her way, she probably would still be anonymous today. It, I think it just shows that people are trying to mix up the status quo and there's a lot of excitement and momentum behind that, but even the people doing it probably don't know exactly what would happen to the art world if the top 10 or 100 biggest uh, provocateurs on Instagram took off their masks and were publicly known and made a living out of it as public figures, as art critics. Like, is this art criticism? That is a great question, Brandon. Um, not always. As I mentioned earlier, um, the anonymity thing specifically, it's hard to take uh, life-changing advice or hard-hitting accusations when you can't tell who is saying them. And I'm not saying that makes it wrong or completely negligible. I'm just saying, you know, imagine another instance in which case you had a party of three people and they were pointing fingers at each other. What if one of those people, you couldn't identify them by name, face, how, how would that argument shake out? It would be completely different. And I think that's important to remember here that there's a lot of people flexing their Photoshop skills on Instagram and making funny jokes. And that's great. But sometimes you have to be careful not to inflate its importance larger than that because you may just not know anyone involved in what's being discussed. Well, and to the extent, like I said earlier about these accounts saying the quiet part out loud, uh, to kind of finish off with an idea, you know, there was a wide walls, the publication wide walls did an interview, um, with Jerry. And I've been saying, I've been calling, uh, Hilda Jerry throughout because it's like her persona essentially. Um, so to make it clear, Jerry Gagosian obviously is a combination of Jerry Saltz and Larry Gagosian, um, so Jerry did an interview with wide walls and they talked about the fact that they're like writing down the things that aren't part of the histories or the things that you can't learn that are part of a, a community. And I thought that was actually a, a very interesting way to look at these because that's a lot more specific than just saying they're saying the quiet part out loud. Like there, there is a secret code to this world and it's the reason that many of us find the art meme accounts funny but it's a code that if you're not privy to it or you weren't raised in it i i was not raised in it i didn't go to museums i didn't know what a blue chip gallery was i didn't know any of that until i started working at various art institutions in college and studying art and just talking to people and consuming as much uh, content as i could so i i 
if I saw these memes 10 years ago, I would not know what they were or why they were funny. And of course, the memes I'm talking about are very specifically the art related ones. Um, anyone could get a, just a funny meme joke, uh, like some of these accounts do post sometimes. But the things that they don't teach you in art school or the realities of this world that we're all trying to live in, this very specific, largely elite dominated world are are really interesting and i hope that these accounts you know if people find them uh, i found them just through instagram's algorithm which in itself was kind of frightening because i have no clue how instagram realized that i wanted to follow these but i obviously did um but if more people can learn those things before they kind of break into the world or while they're breaking into the world you know it sets us up to better realize those problems for the future it's an interesting thought experiment that what if someone like Jerry Gagosian can raise these niche problems and barriers to entry in the elitist art world? What if these things can be elevated to just being generally recognized social things in the public consciousness and they're not niche memes for art people? Um, what would that look like? What if the things that we're shouting about online um, actually caused change at the management level at a museum? What would happen? That's a hypothetical, and I don't, I can't spend 20 minutes gesticulating about it, but it's an interesting thing to think about, and we may see what that change will look like if these accounts grow in prominence and i agree i think that's a good place to leave it if you want to actually look at the memes because the visual uh, is the best way to consume this content we're not going to describe memes to you you need to just go to instagram and look at them um so give them some views they're all linked on glass tires uh, page for this podcast and in the show notes so take a look at that anything to add william of all of them, I really like Art Handler Mag. I think it's the most relatable. It definitely has like the widest appeal also. Like there are videos on Art Handler Mag that are just like people on the internet would get and think are funny. I feel like it's it's one of these where you have to have the least amount of specific art knowledge, which also makes sense given the account's name. It's like Art Handlers. It's almost like a it feels like it sounds like a working class of people. I don't know. It's it's trying to be maybe more democratic than some of these other accounts. It feels like a bunch of people on their lunch break fiddling around <laughs> with the stuff they had to pull out of the tool closet and they're just taping things together when nobody's looking. It's fun. Check that out. Check out these other accounts. Thanks for listening and go see some art. Go see some art. This podcast was recorded by Glass Tire and edited by William Saradet. Copyright Glass Tire 2021.